Father, we desire to sit at your feet and learn from you, glean anything that we can to help us make our lives more successful in your eyes and not in the eyes of the world. We care what you think. We ask that you would transform us so that the transition from this life to the next is not so tough. We would ask, Lord, that you would help us to live a life that is pleasing to you. And we know that this can only be accomplished by being in your word and understanding what it has to say. And even though there are difficult teachings for us to receive, we would ask, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, that you would help us to be humble and receive what you have for us. For we know our flesh is contrary to your spirit. Help us to crucify it daily. And through your word, Lord, we ask you to accomplish this. In Jesus' name, amen. We just dealt with the forgiveness and the church discipline of an individual or two individuals inside a church that can't seem to be reconciled over a sin. And we're going into verse 21 where he illustrates this idea of forgiveness, but it kind of has a double meaning here. It, it applied to the forgiveness that we need to extend because of such great debt when we have individuals that we interact with we need to forgive them when they sin against us and we need to seek after them when they do sin against us and be reconciled and open up the relationship completely that's what god wants biblical forgiveness means there's a dissolution of all animosity all the anger the rage the discord hatred anything that is there it goes away and so then jesus he gives this parable In verse 21, starts with Peter. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Because that would obviously be the limit in my mind, right? We wouldn't want to forgive. It's just like I'm being stupid to forgive you so many times. Verse 22, Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. And by the way, it's not 490. In case you were wondering... It's as often as the person comes back, if it's 500 or 1,000 times, and they come back and they say, will you forgive me? We are supposed to forgive them. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. Then the other servants saw what had happened. They were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured 
until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Now that's pretty stern warning about forgiveness. Now how much did this guy actually owe? There's people who did the calculation and it's the equivalent to 150,000 years of work. That's, that's how much this guy owed, the 10,000 talents, or in modern day uh, dollars, $2.25 billion. Even if he sold all that he had, unless you were Mark Zuckerberg at $50 billion, even if he sold all that he had, he would not be able to repay, and he'd remain in prison forever. He would never get out. And then this other fellow, a hundred denarii, a denarius was the payment for one day's wages. In modern times, it could be about $2,000 is what it would be. So this individual owed $2.25 billion. He begged to have it be forgiven. The master had pity on him, and he said, I forgive you of this. You can go. And the man was surely blessed because of that. But then he went to somebody else. And by the way, this is called hyperbole. He's using something really big to illustrate something really small. And this $2.25 billion is just huge. Remember, I think I mentioned to you, it's the plank or beam in your own eye. Remove that first before you try to remove the speck of dust or sawdust in your brother's eye. He's doing the same thing here. This is called hyperbole. And so he owed about $2,000. And that's reasonable. You could pay that back and... You know, a matter of time, even today, you could pay back $2,000 in not too much time. It wouldn't be bad. But this guy was hard-hearted. He was just merciless in his pursuit to get that $2,000. And so he was full of greed as well. Now, if you start comparing to what this story actually points to, it's Jesus Christ who is the master. We are the ones that owe $2.25 billion. We will never be able to repay it. And everyone, it's those who do not forgive that might be in danger of hellfire or judgment. And so if Jesus forgave us such a great debt, we are supposed to forgive those who are around us whenever we are asked to do so. And that's how the... This section, verse 21, begins. How many times do I need to forgive my brother when he comes and asks me? Every single time we need to forgive him. Jesus also forgives us every single time. Now, we might think, well, he really doesn't forgive me. He hasn't blessed me. That's not how it works. God gives us exactly what we need when we need it. He doesn't always give us exactly what we want when we want it. He's in charge of needs. Now, sometimes he does, but it's always according to his will. If we ask for something, if we ask in the name of Jesus, and we're not asking it to heap it upon ourselves for our own selfish desires, he goes, you got it. And Jesus even said, if you ask for anything in his name, according to the Father's will, you have a guarantee to have it. So what is it that you haven't asked for that you could? That's according to the Father's will. How about make you a scholar? God could do that. If you go, God, I I want to be a scholar in the Old and New Testament. I want to be able to retain the information. Do you think it's God's will that you memorize Scripture? We know that it is. Psalm 119. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is God's will. 
I can't tell you how many men and women I've talked to. I just can't remember anything. And then I go, my name is Bill. And you, but they, they say they can't remember anything, but they do have things down, like what's your address? What's your telephone number? You may or may not know that now with the cell phone. You know, that it used to be you would have these numbers memorized. You have the names of your family members memorized. You're able to store that in there. It's just you might be out of practice a little bit, and it takes a little practice, and it's a little difficult, and we don't want to spend the time. But I digress. Jesus is the master, and we are the ones who owe the 10,000 talents. The debt that we have to pay for is sin. And there's nothing that we can give in order to pay for our sin. Jesus had to pay for our sin because he was perfect and God required a life for payment of sin. But he would only get that from somebody who was perfect because God requires a perfect sacrifice. That's why we couldn't shed our blood and think that God is going to be pleased because the life is in the blood and guess what's wrong with our lives? We have the sinful nature. Our life is wrapped up in our blood. Our blood is the life. It is the sinful nature. It is all there. That's why if we lived a life sinless, where we didn't commit a single sin, we still don't get into heaven because our very souls are corrupted on the inside. And Jesus has to transform all of that. That's when we get the new body. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and John chapter 14. That's when we're going to be transformed and we're looking forward to that day. Now, the master here, he was powerful. He was merciful. He had pity on the servant and he was just. And God always judges sin. There's not one sin that he will not judge. All of our sin has already been judged at the cross. God said, payment made. It is sufficient. The blood of Jesus Christ. Numbers chapter 14, verse 17 says, now may the Lord strength be displayed just as you have declared the lord is slow to anger abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished and so he is always faithful to be just when it comes to any violation of his law now the wicked servant he was self-centered prideful harsh ruthless uncaring unappreciative and insincere He walked away probably saying, oh, man, I can't believe I got away with that. He forgave me. And he just went on from there and he thought everything was going to be fine. But his heart was not transformed. It was not changed at all. Matthew 7, 1, which we covered previously, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He's not saying there's a prohibition on making a judgment. He's just saying, beware how you do judge because you'll be judged in the same way. Just as this wicked servant threw that individual into prison that owed him $2,000, well, The master, Jesus, is going to judge that guy or judge us if we treat others in the same way and not forgive their debts against us. And so God says, without question, we are supposed to forgive those who ask us to forgive them. And we're not supposed to hold anything against them whatsoever. And we err in believing we do not owe God a debt. There's so many out there that just feel well, I, you know, I'm a good person. I, I do good things. I, I help people that are in need, but they neglect the inside heart issue, the fallenness that we have on the inside. And we err in believing our sin is not that bad and we don't owe that much. 
we owe more than, quote-unquote, $2.25 billion. It, it is immeasurable how much we owe to Jesus Christ for paying the price for us. Now, Simon the leper, that's not supposed to be in there. Here we go. We're in Matthew chapter 19 now. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went, to, went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds had followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wife because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they are born that way. Others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept it should accept it. And so here we are repeating what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 5, about not divorcing. We have been given a command, it's very clear, not to divorce. It also says in the book of Malachi that God hates divorce. And of course the marriage union is like that of Jesus with his bride. But the relationship is also very similar to that which exists between the Trinity. You know, when Adam was created, in him was the woman. Now, I'm not going to get all weird on you, but I I just want to kind of express to you what the Jewish rabbis taught. The Jewish rabbis taught, first it was Adam, and then all the animals came, and he named all the animals which were out there, but... After looking at all the animals, there was not a, a helpmate suitable for him. So God called a deep sleep to fall upon him. And he separated out from him the woman. Do you know the woman was not called Eve until after the fall? That they were both called Adam, which means man. That together they were one. They were of the same essence. And that's where you get into the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are of the same essence. And in Adam was Eve. Eve was taken out of Adam and placed by her side. Now, after the fall, the only way to get back to that relationship, and the term that they used, the Jewish rabbis used, was androgynous or... 
I'm not even going to use that word, but androgynous. If you don't know what that means, look that up. And it's almost as if they are one. Adam and Eve were one before the fall. In spirit, in soul, in essence, in everything, they were in fact one. After the fall, that was broken. And the way that marriage is set up is that you get back to what it was originally supposed to be in the marital union. And if you break that union, if you transfer that over to the Trinity, well, it's like breaking the Trinity. And we are created in the image of God. Now, you might say, well, we're a Trinity, right? Me, myself, and I. Yeah, that, that's true. We are all there. Body, soul, and spirit. We're kind of a Trinity in ourselves. And some people debate, well, is there just a soul and a spirit? Or is the spirit dead? And then it comes to life when we get saved. And it's just a body and a soul until then. And that debate rages. It's been going on for centuries. I believe we're body, soul, and spirit. With all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know, it's that kind of thing. All that stuff is wrapped up on the inside. For instance, those who live a life for Christ, they want to do what is pleasing to Christ. The spirit within them prompts them to do that which is good. But the fallen part, the soul that is corrupted, says, no, the flesh, I don't want to do that. And again, you have the little angel over here and the little devil over here, and they war against each other. And you have to decide which one you're going to submit to, just like I have to decide which one I'm going to submit to. And none of us are going to be successful when it comes to this, but we continue in the way. And Jesus knows that, that we are weak, that we are fallen, that we are going to blow it. And he goes, I know, I know. That's why I'm giving you my spirit to keep bringing you back to where you need to be. And don't worry, all this will be taken away. God is so good to us that he's going to give us that new nature where we will not have one single sinful thought. It will not even come to mind. We're not even going to worry about, well, you, you got more manna than I did. You know, it's not going to happen like that. Oh, you're shining more today than I am. How's my hair look? Is it glowing enough? Or from the inside, are you quite as bright as you could be? We're always going to be filled with joy. Now, some people would say, well, how do you know what joy is unless you feel down? See, that's the beauty of going to being in heaven. It's not going to be a problem for us. We're going to be up all the time and we're not even going to need coffee to get there we're just going to be awake and we're going to be happy and we're going to be communicating never have to sleep we can eat if we want to we can go places we can do things for the lord and the lord is going to be pleased with us and we're going to adore the lord up there that's the way it's going to be in heaven here it's a little bit different it's a drudgery it's like oh creaking patty and i were just talking about oh my knee and my leg and my shoulder and didn't sleep and you know all of these things that just happen to us as we get older and it's difficult we're not gonna have to worry about any of that at all and when we get our new bodies we'll come back here in the millennium and we'll minister to those who still endure it Now, their endurance is not going to be quite like ours because God's going to have them live a little bit longer. They could live hundreds of years, and so they're not going to creak quite as bad as we do, but we're going to be blessed, and we're never going to have to worry about the bodies falling apart. And so this idea that we have here, when Jesus finished these sayings, he went into the uh, idea of marriage and divorce and 
what that is all about. And the Jews, when they looked at marriage, it was very important to them. It was something they considered sacred. But they deferred to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And that dealt with giving a woman a certificate of divorce. Did you notice, if you've read that, it wasn't a woman giving a man a certificate of divorce? They had no authority to do that. It was the man that had the authority to give the woman a writ of divorce. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, he has found some kind of uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife. And she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which your Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And so this idea of marriage, divorce, and remarriage to the original husband was forbidden. Well, the Jews went back and they looked at that and they had different ways of thinking. And I covered this in Matthew chapter 5, but since the Lord brought it up again, I'm going to bring it up again. And there was conservative thought and there was liberal thought. And I'm going to give you a third one, freedom. There was just freedom at that point. So the Conservative thought was uh, by Rabbi Shammai. Shammai was the conservative. They had conservative and liberals back then as well. And Shammai said the only reason that you can divorce your wife is for an immoral matter. And specifically some would say adultery. But it had to be something that would break the marital bond. Now, liberal thought which was led by Rabbi Hillel, he said, you can divorce for pretty much any reason. And the one that constantly came up when you do research, when I did research on it, was if she failed at cooking a meal properly. You could divorce her if she burnt the toast, so to speak. If it didn't taste quite right, you could say, that's it, you're gone, and you write the certificate of divorce. Now, I think most women, they probably know how to cook, but every once in a while, just like men aren't perfect at building things and doing stuff, women get it wrong sometimes at the food counter. And when that happens, boy, you you better be careful to get every single meal perfect. And it was just a ruse because if the husband said, I don't like it anyhow, but it's your favorite meal. And you say, I don't like it. You're done. They could just write that writ of divorce. And Jesus points out it's because of the hardness of your hearts that you guys are actually involved in doing this. And it was not supposed to be that way from the beginning. So you had Rabbi Shammai, you had Rabbi Hillel, and then you had this other rabbi, Akiva. Now, Akiva, he was a convert to Judaism, but he had a lot to do with the Mishnah, and he was actually killed because he taught the Torah Uh, after the fall of the second temple, after Jesus' time, he died about 135 A.D., and he was considered very important. Had a lot of things to say. What he thought about was written down. It was passed on through the school. And he said that even if you find another woman who is beautiful, you can divorce your wife and you can marry her. 
He, he just opened it up like, you know, it, it's all good. Whatever you want to do. So they interpreted the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, specifically when it comes to this idea of divorce. They had three different ways, only for sexual immorality, something immoral inside the marriage. If she burnt the toast, and if you find another woman that's prettier, you can do that, all three. Now, which one do you think Jesus held to? The conservative one, Shammai. He said there is only one reason why there should be a divorce. And this, you know, is difficult for individuals to hold on to this. They didn't like what they were hearing because they were constantly marrying and remarrying in this. Now, they considered it so important. There was another rabbi, Eliezer, that said, when a man divorces his first wife, the very altar sheds tears. And so, you know, the the guys who were conservative that understood what the Old Testament had to say, they understood what Jesus would be saying about this as well. And they turned a concession into a command because, after all, we are fallen. You know, there's things that happen inside of marriages that you don't anticipate. Maybe the guy becomes abusive and a, a drug abuser as well and violent and I always recommend that the woman get out of that situation I'm not saying that she goes gets a divorce but you definitely have to get out of that especially if there's children involved it can be very dangerous and Moses never gave a command to divorce it just was something that was a concession if all else had failed there was no way to correct it and whenever the divorce was given like that it was for the purposes of remarrying. Otherwise, there would not be a reason to divorce. Now, in the Targum of Palestine, it made divorce a commandment of God. So they were taking it based on what the rabbis taught, and they said, no, it's a command right here. You need to divorce. New Testament, Old Testament, the teaching of God is, it is never a command. Now, divorce, whenever it takes place, because the man and woman were one before the fall and then the fall happened and they became separate individuals and the way to bring that back as one as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one is to remain in that holy union for the remainder of your life. And that speaks of Jesus Christ in the church, Ephesians chapter 5. It speaks about marriage there, and you're thinking, wow, it's talking about husband and wife. And at the end, he says, no, I'm talking about Christ and the church, and we will be with him forever. And so when there's a divorce, it ruins the type of Jesus being married to the church and the union of the Trinity, which is up there. So divorce always involves adultery. Adultery always takes place. Even Shammai said, that's the only reason that you can get a divorce. Well, it's because of adultery. And when the person remarries, they end up sleeping with somebody who was not their first spouse. And therefore, it is considered adultery in the eyes of God. But again, God gives a concession for that. Now, if somebody is just irresponsible, that's not a reason for the divorce. If somebody didn't cook the meal right, that's not a reason for divorce. If a guy can't hold a job, that's not a reason for a divorce. And you would probably say at this point, and I would too, well, 
If that's the case, it's better not to marry. You don't know how this person's going to eventually turn out. They could end up being a bum of some kind. Is that offensive to anyone? I hope not. Uh, you know, we can't say these words. I said like a gun yesterday, and now I said a bum. And is it all right to say a bum? I'm, I'm just going to speak my mind, okay? So if you're offended, I'm sorry. It won't be the first time. So let, let's go on with that. It, it, it's this idea that we find reasons to get a divorce. Now, I'll ask you, is marriage fun when it works? I'll tell you what, in my life, it's fun. It's like Magic Mountain. I mean, it's woohoo, you know, and you're just, you're going on the roller coaster. Oh, yeah, whoa! And you come back up and you ah, we made that one. That was good, right? But when marriage is bad, is it a trial? Can I get an amen? It is. It's hard. It's difficult because it requires us to die. But did Jesus say, hey, guess what? I appointed you for suffering. But not in marriage, right? No. We get it there too. We get it from our kids. We get it from our parents. We get it from our spouse. The world would be a, such a better place if the people were just not in it. Right? That's, that's the way we look at it. And God says, no, I'm going to use all of that to hone you into who you need to be. And oftentimes when we're in the midst of the trial, if we can pray to get out of the trial, we pray to get out of the trial. But if God says, no, stay, you're going to learn. I think I know an apostle who had a thorn in the flesh that he has to be taken away. And it wasn't taken away. And he goes, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And he got exactly what he needed for his life. Now, this can be complicated and, and people end up feeling guilty. It's like, well, I got a divorce and what am I supposed to do? You know, there is this thing, it's called forgiveness. And all you have to do is you ask Jesus to forgive and he forgives. And I've heard, and I've mentioned this to you in Matthew chapter 5. I heard one pastor say, well, if you've divorced and remarried, you need to divorce that second marriage and get back with your first marriage. And, of course, we just read in Deuteronomy that, no, that's not what you're supposed to do. But if somebody does in the New Testament, there's also forgiveness for that as well. I mean, sometimes it just gets so complicated. that The bottom line is, don't. If you think you're going to, don't marry. But if you are burning with lust... Get married and join the fray. You know, it's just going to be one of those things. And that's how it works. And I, I wish the statistics for marriage and divorce and remarriage in the church were better. But, you know, we are sinners just like the rest of the world. And God has redeemed us from that. And there are reasons to stay single it can be that somebody, the way that they were born, a congenital disease or something, they just are not able to get married and it wouldn't work for them. There's cultural reasons uh, that you would not get married. For instance, in the Old Testament, you might be a guard of the harem. It wouldn't be good to put a uh, male who is fully functional to guard all the women in the king's harem. Not a good idea. And so they would have the 
operation to take it off to me and then they would go ahead and set that guy up and he would be a guard and by the way that's a technical term he, he would be a guard over the women that were there and so that's a reason not to get married as well and of course there's a spiritual reason voluntary celibacy to be devoted to the lord's work you can minister in such a way that you could not minister if you were married to someone and he was unmarried cares for the things of the lord it says in first corinthians chapter 7 verse 32 but a man who is married cares for the things of his wife which is as it should be and the lord says you know if you're going to be a man take on the care of the wife and the kids raise them up that's what we're supposed to do the typical nuclear family as it has been termed in the past verse 13 it goes on then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and to pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. People were in the habit of bringing their little children to a rabbi so that the rabbi could bless them, either pray for them or put their hands on them, that type of thing. And what Jesus did here is Jesus took the kids. He, he put his arms around them. If you read the other gospel accounts, the kids came up. He loved the kids. And these are small kids. You know, these are kids probably three to five years old, a four years old. You know, they walk up and they're little tiny kids and they're so innocent and they're trusting. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And Jesus said, no, don't stop the kids from coming to me. I like the kids. And he'd bring them around. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. And so Jesus said, no, the kids, they are it. They are the epitome of who goes to heaven, who is there. They are trusting, they are innocent, and all those characteristics are going to be what we have in our new nature when we get to heaven as well. Mark ten sixteen says, And he took the children in his arms and put his hand on them and blessed them. So he played with them. I love playing with the little kids. My grandson, Drake, uh, he'll come over. And uh, first he had the Spider-Man outfit. And he would come over and he would hide. Where did he go? And he's behind the couch and he's putting on his Spider-Man outfit. And he comes out and he's like this. And I go, oh! Like, and I start doing that with him and we run around the house, you know. And, and then he showed up with the black Spider-Man outfit. And we did that all over again. We're running through the house and I'd grab him and turn him around. And, and he'd get I got away! You know, and he, he'd do stuff like that. It's fun to play with those little kids. And God wants us to do that. God wants us to bless them as well as ra raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's so fun. It keeps us young. I'm so glad I had my kids when I was younger so that when I have the grandkids, I'm still able to move around without too much pain, you know, and, and play with them. And I just love that. I love the little kids, and they're so innocent. They're so just like God would have us be. And it's great to be surrounded with them. And so the parents brought their children to Jesus. Parents who loved their children wanted them to be as close to the Lord as possible. And again, like I said, the ancient practice was to bring the children to an esteemed rabbi for prayer. And even Joseph, remember Ephraim and Manasseh? He took them to his father, Jacob. And Jacob blessed them. 
He placed his hands upon them. And Joseph thought it was the wrong order, but it was the right order. And he still blessed them. And we still like to do that. I, I know grandmothers especially, come here, let me give you a kiss. And they grab their cheeks and they pull them in there. And they want to get away type of thing. But we want to bless the little kids. And that is good and that is biblical. Uh, Matthew 18.3, and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever stumble, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so, again, we are supposed to be like these children. Verse 16, now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Now, there's something textually that's going on here. You read some versions of this, and it says, Now, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Good teacher. In this version, it says, Now, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do? And in the context that's here, He says, there is only one who is good in verse 17. And he makes a reference to God being good. But if you read the different translations and you go back to some of the original Greek, there's different uh, translations of the Greek. It seems to be that the man came up and said, good teacher, what good thing should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turned back to him and said, why do you call me good? And that's the whole context of what's going on. In this one particular verse, you can't really get it. You have to go back to the couple of different translations of the Greek that are there. And then you see how the modern English translations, they will interpret both sides depending on which Greek translation they think is better. But in context, this man comes up and says, Good teacher, what good thing should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. And so he's given this guy an inroad. You're calling me good. There's only one who is good. Are you calling me God? Because he didn't deny that he was good. And you could see this is a reference to deity. It's a veiled reference, but it is there that Jesus is, in fact, God in human form. Because there's only one who is good. He didn't say, no, don't call me good because I'm not God. He didn't say any of that. And so that's the textual variants that are there. So the purpose of Jesus saying no one is good, either Jesus is not good or Jesus is God. And that's what this guy was left with. Verse 18, which ones, the man inquired. He asked him, do you obey the commandments? And which ones? Jesus replied, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your mother and father, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad Because he had great wealth. So this man was materially wealthy. He had no worries whatsoever. He had his 401k. He probably had a couple of pieces of property. He probably had a farm somewhere. He had stores of grain. 
he he's probably just set to go for the rest of his life. And he was a young man. He probably inherited a lot of it. He could have been a self-made man. We don't know. But he had no worries. In other words, he had no reason to trust somebody for what he needed. And that was the problem with wealth. And that is our problem as well. If we get too much, we trust in what we have. And we know that money can take wings. Every time I get some money in, it leaves me. You know, I say, what happened? I, I, I've tried so hard to save it, but something comes up. The car breaks down. I get a little sick. I have to go see the doctor. But something happens in the family. You got to pay for that. Your house starts breaking down. You know, it just never ends, it seems like. And God provides exactly what I need and for you as well when we need it. But this guy was over the top. He didn't have to worry about any of that whatsoever. He thought obedience to the law was all that was necessary. And Jesus asked him about that. So are you keeping the law? You know, honoring your mother and father? You love your neighbor as yourself? Yeah, I've done all of that. It's all good. So all he thought he had to do was the stuff. Just follow through with the stuff. And then you become righteous. But his heart was not trusting. And that's the issue. He still felt something was missing. He said, what do I still lack? And he said, sell everything you have. If he sold everything that he had, everything, what would he have to do? Trust. I mean, big time. But look how comfortable we are in the United States. We are so comfortable. I wish everyone in here could go with us to Africa and, and just experience what they don't have. Now, they're just as happy as peaches over there they they smile their smiles are huge you know they're just happy and they dance and you play a drum and man they just start hopping and they just love it over there but there's a lot of tragedy but they're still always happy they're always smiling they always embrace you and where we go they have nothing i mean literally nothing they have sticks and mud uh, where we have been in the past, even worse than Cambodia. And and they are individuals. They trust, the kids trust in their parents. The parents, you know, they do what they can to get things done. But, of course, it is God who provides all of that. And this Rabbi Akiva that I quoted earlier, he had a favorite maxim. All that God does, he does for the good. Now, we have wealth in this country, and that has been good. It has been good for the world because the United States has been lifted up. It's like the rising tide raises all boats. You've heard that quote before. Because we have so prospered in this country, poverty around the world has decreased. We've been able to export that. And that's a good thing. That is good for the entire world. At the same time, having wealth can be a curse. But all that God does... He does for the good. Now, I want to give you a story about this guy's life. This is how this is illustrated. Once after he was unable to find any place to sleep in a certain city, he passed the night alone in the forest and repeated his maxim calmly. All that God does is for the good. Then one after another, a lion devoured his donkey, a cat killed his rooster, And the wind extinguished his candle. Each time he said, all that God does is for the good. Now, if you were in that situation, 
a lion ate your transportation, a cat ate your food, and you have no light, and you're in the forest, and it's dark. Where'd you go? Hallelujah. This guy was saying, all that God does, he does for good. When dawn arrived, he discovered that a band of robbers had fallen upon the city and carried its inhabitants into captivity. Only he had escaped because his donkey and rooster were not around to make any noises and his extinguished candle did not give away his location. So on one hand, you might curse the day that the donkey was given to you and the, the rooster was eaten by the cat and my, I don't have any matches. They didn't have matches back then, you know, to make a fire. And, and so all of that happened to him and he goes, all that God does, he does for the good, for us. And so when we come across that calamity, when we come across the problem, we say all that God does, he does for the good. And if he blesses us with wealth, well, that's for the good. In this case, it was good that the guy had his wealth and talked to Jesus so that he would see his need. That's what happened here. He had to learn to trust in Jesus Christ himself. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. If you go to Jerusalem, they'll take you to this door that's up on the, by the Temple Mount area, and this door is cut in half. And so you have to bend down to get through it. And they say, see, we call that the eye of the needle. It's hard for a camel to get through that. He has to get down on all fours. And we kind of shove and push him through that. But he can still get through. And so a rich man can get into heaven. That's not the needle that Jesus described. He described a sewing needle. Can you get a camel through a sewing needle? Do you guys remember the Macintosh computers? That little nine-inch screen that was black and white? It came with several little games on it, like tank. You know, you'd shoot this little thing over and try to hit another tank. It had this other one, camel in the eye of the needle. And it had these crosshairs. And these crosshairs were in front of a needle. And a camel was on the other side. And you were supposed to take your little cursor and raise up that needle and push against the camel. And it gave you a side view of the camel trying to go through the needle. And you kept on doing it, and you kept on doing it, and you kept on doing it, and you kept on doing it. You could never get it through the eye of the needle. And that was the point of the game. Some Christian had put that in there, and you're like, ha-ha! And, you know, I'm trying, and I'm getting that camel through the eye, the-, and it wouldn't go through the eye of the needle. And so he's saying, not only with the rich, but with everyone, it is impossible for anybody to get into heaven, whether they have wealth or they are poor, without Jesus Christ. Now, there's more to say about this, and we're out of time, and I'll continue on this next time. But the idea is trust, and it goes all the way back. Trust and faith in Jesus Christ, it goes all the way back to the beginning of the chapter here, and even back into the last one. We need to trust him no matter what's going on. Whatever God does, he does for our good. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the illustrations, the stories, the teachings that you deliver to us. They provide for us insight and knowledge. But we had asked specifically for wisdom to apply the knowledge. That we would certainly not just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers and we would act in a way that is full of wisdom that only you can provide, and you promise to give it to us when we ask. So we'll trust you for it, Lord. And we'll trust you for our very salvation. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.